And I'm going to ask Craig, if he would, to read Titus, uh, Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. Let's read along with him. Okay, verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be, found, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Thank you, Craig. Let's take a moment and just pray together. And we're going to talk about false teachers in the church. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for your spirit who illuminates the word of God to every believer. You tell us, Jesus, that your sheep will hear your voice and they will follow. You tell us to abide in Christ and we will. We desire to be with you. We desire to hear your word and to be obedient to it. And Lord, although we fail, we're thankful, thankful for your forgiveness and for your mercy and for your continual patience with us. And thank you that we can have a Christian duty, a Christian practice. And so please help us this morning as we look at these false teachers, help us to, help us to avoid them. And for some of us, we need to stop them. And so teach us what this means by this passage. We love you, Lord, and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to talk about false teachers, and I thought I would just introduce this by kind of getting us familiar or re-familiar or just kind of bringing up some false teachers. Maybe you've been under false teachers at some point in your life. Maybe you've been under a false teacher and didn't even know it. Um, but this morning, what we want to flush out is how the scriptures describe false teachers and how Titus, uh, Paul is telling Titus to respond to false teachers. And then we want to see... Uh, in addition to that, we want to see why it's important to confront false teachers. And so false teachers, who are they? What do they look like? Um, well, one thing um, you can hear about false teachers, I, I want to give you a quote from the Supreme Pontiff. Anybody know who the Supreme Pontiff is? The Supreme Pontiff is the Holy Father. And does anybody know who the Holy Father is? According to the Catholic uh, according to the Catholic faith, the Supreme Pontiff is the Holy Father. That's the Pope. So I don't know if you know that, but when you're recognizing the Pope, he is the Holy Pontiff in the eyes of the Catholic Church. Pope Francis, this is what he said. This is Pope Francis, the current Pope right now. He quoted this, quote, Sacred Scripture is the written testimony of the divine Word of God. We believe this. It's the written testimony of the divine word, the canonical memory that attests to the, to the event of revelation. However, he goes on to say, the word of God precedes the Bible and surpasses it. That is why the center of our faith isn't just a book, but a salvation history. 
and above all, a person, Jesus Christ, the Word of God made flesh, unquote. So I don't know if you're catching that, but the Supreme Pontiff, here's what he's highlighting. He's talking about Scripture in a way that we would absolutely agree with at the very beginning. It's the divine Word of God. But also he puts in his quote there, however, the Word of God proceeds the Bible. That's problematic. The Word of God proceeds the Bible. What's he saying there when he says that? Any, any thoughts, any comments? What is he saying there when he says the Word of God proceeds the Bible? And if you have a thought on that, but here's what's happening. What he's talking about here is he can say whatever he wants. And by the way, he's the supreme authority. And in the Catholic Church, what he says goes. And, and by the way, if you have a thought or a comment on that, please let me know. I know Craig had the mic and then he put it down, but I'm just trying to keep things moving. So if you have a thought or a comment, you, you got to jump on the train because we're moving this morning. So, but isn't that interesting? He's just opening the door for his authority. And, and in fact, this is where within the Catholic Church, you get um, Mary's a co-redeemer. Now that's not in the word of God, but remember what he's saying here. However, the word of God precedes the Bible and he's making up the word of God and the popes before him. Isn't that an interesting thought here? So false teachers, they're coming into the church and Paul here in this passage in Titus chapter one, he's gonna be addressing the false teachers. And so let me just give you a couple other thoughts to think about by way of false teachers. Sensationalism. Maybe some of you have heard that word before and trying to figure out what, is, what, are, what are they talking about when you hear the word sensation or sensationalism? <clears throat> sensationalism is to use astonishing things. It's to use alluring things, emotional things, or shocking things in order to grip or make things intense to invoke a strong reaction. Isn't that interesting? I mean, if you're in theater, you know exactly what we're talking about. But remember, the Christian faith isn't about theater. In fact, if you follow that line of thought, the theater, the actor, he's the one who just is acting out. He's not genuinely that character. In fact, in the Bible, when you look at the word hypocrite, it means, it means the actor because you're thinking one thing but acting out another. And so sensationalism, they're using all sorts of techniques and devices to make things, to invoke your emotions and make things intense and to bring about a strong reaction. The charismatic movement, when we think about false teachers, the word of faith movement, the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, this is under uh, sensationalism or it's under charismatic movement or the word of faith movement. The manifestations of the Holy Spirit is given today by speaking in tongues and by prophesying. I remember when I was a young Christian, Sister Laura at Brockway Glass, this is over 35 years ago. I was working there and you know, the whole deal around her faith and, and those around her, if you're not speaking in tongues and giving a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, then you're not saved. And as a young Christian, that was rather shocking to me and rather challenging in my own and my own thinking. So manifestations of the Holy Spirit, this was what the charismatic movement or the word of faith movement, divine miracles and healings. I remember being at work, we would go into San Ramon and every Friday we'd have a business meeting. And I remember 
uh, a new associate came in. He wasn't there very long, but when he came in, he brought with him. And this is, this is about life insurance. This is my job. I'm doing my insurance thing. But this guy came in professing to be a believer and said he's part of the healing movement. And the interesting thing was he was always sick. And one day I asked him, you know, you're, you're about the healing movement. Um, you're, you're about divine miracles and healings, and you keep speaking about this, and yet you're sick. I hear you coughing, and I hear you. And you know, what, 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 their, what their thought is, is that my faith is not strong enough. This is why I'm not feeling good. I remember one of my examiners, she had a hurt back, and I remember you know, she goes to a church in Fairfield that wants to proclaim divine healings, and she's been suffering with this back, and I remember her telling me, my back is just completely healed, and then two months later, her back was not healed. No, if it's of a divine healing, it's going to be completely healed. That's what a divine healing is. There's no symptoms after that. It's gone, and so I challenged her on that, huh? Didn't you tell me that you were divinely healed two months ago, but now you have back problems again? I just am trying to help you to see. Do you see the inconsistency there? And so somebody's, and again, this is through church. This is through her church leadership who are convincing her that she's divinely healed. So interesting dilemmas here. This is one interesting thing. Um, so... <laughs> Under false teachers, this is an extreme example, but I found this very interesting. Have you ever heard of grave soaking? Have you ever heard of this? Or also known as, also known as mantle grabbing? Have you ever heard of this? Grave soaking or mantle grabbing? Um, sometimes it's called sucking, sucking up. This is really wild, but it's not too far away. It comes from a church in Redding, California. And by the way, their music ministry is one of the top 10 on the Christian charts producing music that is just being pumped out into the Christian world and people are listening to it all the time. And so grave soaking is this. Grave soaking comes from Bethel Church and many are claiming that Bill Johnson, who's one of the founding pastors there, along with his wife, it's the act of lying across a physical grave of a deceased preacher or evangelist for the purpose of pulling out the power of the Holy Spirit, a power that was allegedly trapped within their body upon that person's death. The abnormal practice of grave sucking or grave soaking or mantle grabbing was initially uh, it, uh, it's an emerging of both Orthodox Christianity and mysticism. And so Videos and images across the internet show grave soakers kneeling or lying across grave plots or gravestones of famous figures such as C.S. Lewis, John Calvin, Charles Finney, etc. Grabbing the abandoned spiritual manner or soaking up uh, an anointing like a sponge. I mean, that's what some of these false teachers are believing. And I won't go into details, but they get this passage of scripture from 1 Kings 19, if you're kind of thinking, where do they even get that? And essentially what they do, and this is, essentially what they do is, um, one of the well-known stories that they point to is Elijah, Elijah, when he's passing the mantle onto Elisha in the Bible. And after Elijah was translated into heaven, Elisha picked up the mantle and became uh, 
became Israel's new prophet. But I mean, they take this and they just distort it and twist it and, and pull it in all sorts of chaotic directions. This is not about God. This is not of God. And so when we think about false teachers, let me just make it clear here. The doctrine of false teachings, they would attack. Well, let me ask you. And, and uh, you, you just raise your hand and yell it out. Craig doesn't even need to run. But what are they going to attack first, the false teacher? Scripture. Derek says script. Scripture. Once the, foundation that, once the foundation has a crack in it, once the foundation is moved or removed, this is exactly why the Supreme Pontiff, right, this is exact. How many Catholics do we know that sit under this teaching and have no idea about the Supreme Pontiff? So this is not to be critical in any other way, but as you look at, and we're going to look at this passage, that we are to stop these folks. We are to confront these folks. Now, I know what you're thinking, and let's let this flush out, because I think you're going to get different connotations other than, like, I'm not, I'm not saying let's duke it out physically with them, or let's get into these contentious battles. That's not what this is going to teach us, this passage. So hang on with me, and let's flush it out together. But they attack Scripture. The doctrine of Jesus Christ is always attacked from the beginning. They always say he's just a man, or they'll have some kind of distortion as far as looking at Jesus Christ. And if you notice, even the Supreme Pontiff, he mentions Jesus Christ, and yet he distorts the very word of God that would represent Jesus Christ. Interesting. So the doctrine of the Trinity will be, will be attacked under the false teachers. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit will be attacked. I mean, it's, it's an it. I mean, we see it with the, Jehovah's, with the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, that the Holy Spirit is simply an it. It's a power. It's not him. And so the doctrine of salvation is always attacked. We have churches that would even seem like us, but they do not have the doctrine of salvation in a biblical way. They believe it's man-centered, where man chooses today, heaven or hell. And I understand in a sense that that can be true, but clearly scripture shows that if man is at this point of choosing Christ, it's because the spirit of God has gone before him and illuminated and made clear what the word of God says and has regenerated a man's heart. This is Titus 3, verse 5. You can't miss it. And so they don't get the doctrine of salvation. It's skewed. It's distorted. It's blurred. That's terrible. We should never go to a church like that. In fact, we should recognize it if they are persistently not scripturally about their doctrines of salvation that is not a healthy church to go to. So where are the battles? Where, where? And lastly, let me just say this, the doctrine of sanctification. I, I have read on Facebook, and I won't go into detail for time's sake, but I have, I have seen things on Facebook that just are clear. I mean, I've seen loving Christians just not understand the doctrine of sanctification. And so it's important, the doctrine of sanctification. God has saved us. He has sealed us in Christ. But now we have a Christian duty. And those of us who are in Christ, we work out that Christian duty according to Philippians 2.12, according to different passages. But sanctification is so important. God does this work, but in addition, we also... Not only are we sanctified by the Holy Spirit, but we have a responsibility and a duty. In fact, let's turn to Titus right now, but that, that's what this book is all about. 
the duty, the Christian duty, and we've been talking about that. So last week we just surveyed this, and if you notice, last week what we talked about was the elder, the one who is doctrinally sound. We looked at this, and in verse 5, take a look at that, where Paul is telling Titus. He's telling his beloved child, his true brother in the faith, the one he's, the one who he, Paul is working Paul is working into the life of Titus to raise him up as a sound elder in the church. And he says this, stay on at Crete and I want you to stay on in Crete and put, put, put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So last week we talked about that and um, we observed um, basically, we observed principles of the biblical elder last week. And then we observed how does Titus know who to pick. And really what Paul was pointing to is the man's character and the man's doctrine. And in verse 9, take a look at it with me. In verse 9 of last week, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. This is nothing new to him. This is, these are things that are being circulated in that time throughout the regions there and the apostles and the disciples who walked with Christ and saw Christ in those testimonies that now in the 21st century we hold canonized and believe it from Genesis to Revelation. Paul is telling him, here's who you pick, the men who are not only character, not only who represent the salvation that God has given them, but they also have a sound doctrine about them. They're, they hold fast, they grab onto it, this, this sound doctrine as trustworthy and, and, and was taught to them. And so that, that they might be able to give instruction. We need instruction, and that's who the elder ought to be, the person who continues to give instruction. And if you notice, not only instruction and sound doctrine, but able to rebuke. All of us like children, we're God's children, and we need to be rebuked and corrected. That's what that means. We need to be corrected. And those of us who know Christ, we hear his word. And God's using the healthy elder as the under-shepherd. And then the elder not only is working with the Christian, but he's also working with the naysayer. Because look at the very end of verse 9. Those who contradict sound teaching. So the elder, the one who's sound in faith, needs to be sound in doctrine. Those are, those, those are two things that have to be together, sound in faith and sound in doctrine. Sound in doctrine, sound in faith. You're not, you're not going to have one without the other. You just won't. And so if you go to a church or you know people that go to a church and you're trying to think, how can I help them? How can I minister to them? Think about where they go to church. Think about where they go to church. And sometimes we need to be, dis we need to be persuading people to move away from that church and know the issues. So let's flesh this out a little bit. So here's what Paul is, here's what Paul is going to tell Titus. Look at, look at uh, uh, Christ is exalted, A on your outline, Christ is exalted when defiant false teachers are silenced. Now I want to tell you why I put defiant false teachers. These are men who have been told over and over and over. Okay, let me make this distinction. I'm not talking about someone who's just stumbled into a church, although we want to correct them, th that younger brother in the faith who's underneath this kind of false teaching. And so we need to be gentle with that person and be strong in doctrine ourselves to persuade them through scripture of why this is not right. 
We're always using scripture to do that. But I'm talking about today, when we talk about false teachers today, Christ is exalted when defiant and false teachers are silent. These are people who have been told over and over and over and been shown scripture, and yet they are still defiant about it. They will resist it. They don't want it. And so Christ is exalted when defiant and false teachers are silenced. So Craig read Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 16, but let's take a look. Um, this saying is trustworthy in verse 8 uh, of... of uh, of chapter, of chapter three. Um, just glance there with me just for a second because I, I, want, I want you to see that Paul is strong here in certain, in certain ways about, um, about, about approaching the false teachers. This is a trustworthy saying, verse eight of chapter, of chapter three. And he's just gone into a bunch of doctrine, by the way. He's just gone into the doctrine of... Uh, the doctrine of sin, and he's gone into the doctrine of salvation, and then he's saying this is a trustworthy statement. And so he's going to go on to say in verse 10 and 11, we'll get there, but if, if, people, if people don't embrace this, then there's a certain response, and we'll, and we'll get there. So as for the person, um, uh, yeah, in verse 10 and 11, as for the person who stirs up division, this is chapter 3, by the way, chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, as for the person who stirs up division after warning him, once and then twice have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he's self-condemned. So Paul is making it very clear. And by the way, Paul is talking to Timothy. Uh, Paul is talking to Titus within the boundaries of church structure. I'm just trying to set a little context here. He's talking about within the, church, the boundaries of the church structure, how ch the church should be protected. And so let's go on and talk about this. Um, how does Paul describe the false leader? So this is what we want to get into. How does Paul describe the false teacher? And I want you to draw your attention to verses 10 through 13. And I'm just going to breeze by 11 marks, 11 marks that are going to identify uh, the leader's false character. Now, keep in mind, just like the Pope, I mean, when you start to ask, why does the Pope do that? Or why does the Bill Johnson do that? Why do these false teachers do that? I mean, I can't put my finger on it. I don't know their heart, but God does. And God is revealing to us, when we see somebody that doesn't have sound doctrine and their character doesn't represent what the Bible says, and yet they're representing themselves or being, or being told they're an elder of the church, there's a problem. Clearly there's a problem. So how does he identify the marks of a false teacher? So here we go, verse 10. Number one way to identify them, there's numerous of them. There's many of them. And I don't know if you know this, but when, you, when, uh, uh, when, when we're in Vacaville or Fairfield, there, there are many, many shingles that are out there that have on their Christian church. And, and yet the doctrine that they're espousing is not biblical. And they're not being thorough with scripture. And, and, and so Paul's describing them as many, an abundant number of them. Number two way to describe them is they're unruly. They're, they're, definitely, um, they're definitely authoritative people. And, and the reason why they're so authoritative and dogmatic about what they say, in other words, we've been under teachers where if you don't do it their way, hit the highway. Or if you stay here, you are subhuman if you stay around these kind of leaders. They're unruly 
And usually they're super arrogant. And, and then the reason is, is because they're not under God themselves. They're unruly people. That's exactly what the, what the word means. To be unruly, it just means to be not under authority. And they are not under the greatest authority, which is Christ, which is God himself. They do not see themselves as the bond servant. Number three, they're vain talkers. They're pointless. They say things just like, listen to what the pontiff says. Listen to what the Holy Father says. The Bible is this, however, however, my word goes beyond what the Bible says. Break it down. This is what he's saying. This is heresy at the clearest. And so you have to ask yourself about who we're under, vain teachers. They're just unfruitful. They're pointless. They say things that are senseless. Number four, they're deceivers. They're mind misleaders. They're seducers of the mind. They're misleaders. Isn't that interesting? I can't figure these people out. I don't know why they do what they do, but they do what they do. I can tell you this. They do what they do to get what they want. I mean, I was saying this morning to Tanae, I can't really ever see myself just saying just a make-believe story. Or I have a hard time passing on a story that I'm not really clear is true and accurate. I mean, I'm just not even going to tell the story if I'm not clear in some way with a reputable source of where that story comes from. But these folks are such deceivers, they will grab a story, and if it will allow them to get what they want, they'll tell it. In fact, they'll add to it. They're deceivers. They want to grab minds and mislead them. They want to seduce minds. Number five is they're subverters. And really with that word in verse 10, it means they overthrow. They're underminers. They undermine God's word. This is what the Pope is doing. He's undermining God's word at the very beginning. But not just the Catholics. Don't let me just pick on them. Because we see it with Jehovah's Witnesses. We see it with Mormons. And we see it with all sorts of other fragmented groups that are popping up. And this is why it's so important to not undermine the word of God. They're turning whole families from the gospel, if you notice that in verse 11. Number six, they're unsound in doctrine. That just means that they're not healthy. They're not healthy. They're not whole. They might say a little piece of it. I mean, when you study the Catholic Bible, in fact, I've read I've read about the Catholic faith, I've read about the Catholic, I've read about Catholic grace, I've read about Catholic redemption, and it's interesting because I, I was so intrigued and had to do it because it's so close to what we learn and talk about all the time. But then when you read the Catholic Bible of what it is, it'll always have that however. And I did notice this. It's always down about the sixth or seventh paragraph where most people don't get to. So at the beginning, they sound completely orthodox. And then at the end, it's however. Isn't that interesting? And it doesn't matter what issue. They are different than what the Protestant faith is. They are different. And so they're unsound in doctrine, as well as many, many other people in our midst. And in Paul's day, he was warning Titus, there are people that just do not have the complete and the whole of doctrine and they're unsound. They're filthy lucres. And this is a big one, number seven, filthy lucres. They're dishonest gain at the expense of others. They specifically have a dishonest gain at the expense of others. Um, They want your money. 
They want your properties. They want your resources. Number eight, they're liars. That means they just fabricate. They're storytellers. And they don't care. As long as the story will draw you in, the better. And so they're evil beasts, number nine. And meaning this, it implies brutality and stupidity and unreasonableness. Can you see that snorting evil beast? You know, you're standing behind, be in front of the bull, and it's like, you know, hey, I'm not, I'm, I just want to walk across this little pasture. Please don't run me over. And this thing is, ah, you know, and it's just unreasonable. It implies brutality, stupidity. It cannot reason. They have in mind what they want, and they will get it at your expense and God's expense. They're gluttons, meaning, um, number 10, gluttons, meaning um, their bellies is their priority characterized as selfish, verse 12. And so, <clears throat> and, then, and then 11th, the 11th character is that they're just unsound in faith. And, and look at verse 13. Because they are unsound in doctrine, they are unsound in faith. They don't have a complete faith. They don't have that Hebrews 11:6 faith that says it pleases God. They don't have that. They don't have that at all. These are unsaved people. And so we should not be under them. And if we have relatives, family and friends, we should warn them. So let's talk about this. How should Titus respond to the false teachers? Now you notice what I'm trying to do is frame this in the, in the right way. Because here we're talking about, and, and I'm thankful for our church elders. I mean, over the past couple of years, visiting this church and then September being a, a member here, you know, it's interesting because I can see our guys wanting to defend this church. And it's very difficult. It's very difficult. So in the framework here, Paul is talking to Titus as a young pastor, as a pastor who's qualified because of his character and doctrine and good works. He's qualifying Titus to respond to false teachers. He's commanding him to do that. And so Paul gives Titus two important instructions. And Paul's concerned about God's truth, and he's also concerned about God's elect. And so here's two ways to respond to the false teacher, the unhealthy, the un unruly elder. Number one, and if you notice here in verse 11, they must be stopped. They must be stopped. So what do we do here? That word in verse 11, they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. Do you hear the word teaching there? And teach is twice in that one verse. And basically he's saying you must silence that teaching. You must bridle it. You must muzzle it. Now here's the deal. Somewhere in the list of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 to 7, the qualifications of a godly leader, and in Titus chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, nowhere do you see fists are allowed. In fact, the very opposite. You're, you're not a fist thrower, okay? So this whole thing is not going to happen physically. But there are some strategic ways that you can stop and muzzle them. And the word stopping and muzzle them or bridling them or silencing or shutting them up, I remember not too long ago, you know, we've been having extraordinary wind this season. And, you know, Tanae got a beautiful chime one Christmas from one of her daughters. 
And it's one of these big ones. It's like a big gong. It, I, I'm exaggerating a little bit. But it goes outside our, our window, uh, outside our sliding glass door. And you can hear this thing at night. And one night, Tanae had hung it up in the daytime. And at night, man, this thing was just boom, I mean, three in the morning. We're like woken up. And so we had to go and just simply remove. We just simply had to remove that and bring it in the house and lay it down so you don't hear it anymore. I'm hoping you're kind of getting getting the thought here about how do you silence, how do you shut up, how do you stop the false teacher? Here's one suggestion for church elders, for the church leaders. Don't let people teach. Stop them. Don't let them do it. And if you catch and see and see inconsistencies, that person ought to be worked with. But certainly one way to stop them is just turn them off. You don't give them a platform. Now think with me for a second here. I mean, I I read one of my heroes when I, when I was raising my kids, this guy was a hero to me. I read his books, went to a marriage conference of his, absolutely helped me. 2018, he wrote an article, and this article that he wrote has to do with him saying, everything in the past about the gospel, I, I, I've, only, I've been sharing a partial gospel. And so I was reading a, an article that he wrote in 2018 where I can just see his undermining the gospel. And I'm having to say, look at I don't have a platform to stop this guy, but you know what, I'm just not gonna, I'm not gonna listen to him. I'm not gonna pass him on. And, but, so there's a whole thing there, turn them off. Do not promote their unsound doctrine, their books, their teachings. Don't go to their meetings. Don't, don't listen to their recordings or promote their work. Don't do it. So I remember not too long ago, a pastor disqualified himself and he was on monergism. He had spoken at the, he had spoken at the um, shepherds conference, which is a big national conference where pastors go to be encouraged. And this guy was a, a, a speaker there. He taught at the master's seminary and he disqualified himself. And so the leaders were very kind and gracious to him and instructed him pay attention to your family, get basics in order, and he would not do it. And so, you know, monergism, I went to monergism to see if this guy was still on monergism with all of his sermons. Monergism just took him off. I went to other sites to see if he's gone. And, and that's just a healthy way to respond to the false leader. Stop them. Just don't listen to them. Secondly, let's move on. They must be confronted with sound doctrine. Now again, these people that I have mentioned, the 2018 article that I read from one of my heroes, who's now stepping out assaulting the gospel because really he's attaching law to it. Really, if you read the article, I'd love to read it with you. If you want to read the article, I'll get it for you. But you can see he's attaching law to it. He's attaching law to the gospel. This is what Galatians is all about. You don't do that. And so here's a guy that I love. In fact, I have his books at home and I thought, okay, principally I should just stay away. So they must be confronted. I won't ever have an opportunity, I don't think, in my life to, to come alongside and confront uh, the fellow that I'm telling you about disqualified himself. You know, but if your sphere of influence and you're an elder and these folks are there, you must confront you must confront the sound doctrine, sharply rebuke or correct. Now, I want to change the kind of English connotations because 
In our day and age, in fact, we see it every day on Facebook, you know, sharply confront. That doesn't mean the English connotation like, you know, it's not like, you know, it's, it's not that I got one on you. You know, that, that's not what's going on here. That's not what's going on at all. In fact, I would try to persuade you and influence you and encourage you what this is talking about here is what you ought to do is when you're sharply rebuking, sharply, it just has a way of talking about quick, sudden, abruptly. In other words, you hear something, you're to respond to it. That's what that's talking about. It's not to forget it. Oh, I'll deal with it at the next meeting or I'll do it, you know. No, make a phone call, ask for a meeting, go in and talk with that person and let them know, quickly let them know. And when you're doing it, the, conf the confrontation part of it is, as far as confrontation goes, um, <clears throat> uh, as far as the confrontation goes, it's to convince them. It's, it's to caution them. It's to convict them about what the Word of God says. Not what you're saying, but what the Word says. So you can see, this is like surgery. And some of us just need to get better at surgery. And the surgery part of it is, is knowing the Word of God so you can handle it like a surgeon. And then when these people, and we're around them, and they're undoctrinal, yeah, we're not, so I'm, I'm hoping it's really clear. We're not, we're not just emotionally on top of them trying to change them. That's not what, what's going on here. Sharply rebuking them is just look it. If you hear something, be unemotional about it. Be calm about it. The man of God is temperate. The woman of God is temperate. God is temperate. But he wants it dealt with. That's the, that's the quick. That's the sharp part of it. Uh, Amy's got a question. Yes. Yes. Right. I have to change my voice when I do this. Um, but when, for instance, we were looking at a, a catechism that was written by a pastor that we wouldn't necessarily agree with his beliefs now, but in the past we were like, we were pretty on board. And just different, uh, you know, maybe books that we have on our bookshelves or things that we've seen pastors in the last couple of years have kind of gone uh, to a different direction. I sometimes I wonder, looking at those books on our bookshelves, obviously the books that are written, uh, you know, a few years ago, we, we ascribed to, we believed in, you know, uh, right. uh, uh, were aligned with, but as they've gone astray, sometimes I look at them and I kind of wonder, is, is that something that we should do like in our own homes? Should we get rid of those things? Should we no longer abide I by totally, them? I totally get your question. Amy's talking about on, in her library, she has books and books of people that that they have fellowship with and have great sound doctrine. And now, if there are doctrinal departures, and we're talking about things that are sound doctrinal departures, like the doctrine of salvation and, and the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So we're not talking about differences in opinions of some type, but Amy's question was, so do we get rid of those books? Do we? Okay, I think that's personal conviction, but what I am saying, I think the text here is saying this, don't pass it on. Look at, I, I know a book, it's a powerful book, Spirit-Empowered Preaching. <laughs> that's a concept that everybody wants to be about. Okay, but if somebody that has disqualified themselves and shows themselves 
in an unruly way and continues to not be sound by falling underneath the elders, right, I'm not going to, like, that phrase is okay for me to say. <laughs> I'm not going to pass the literature on or pass the book on. So I hope that was a balance. You know, for our time's sake, I, I totally know. These are great questions. Let's talk about it, though. Keep a discussion going because, you know, what I'm really not wanting to do um, is I'm, not, I'm just not wanting to sound dogmatic. I mean, even the point that we're addressing right here about sharply con confront them. I am not in any way, shape, or form talking about just battling. I mean, and when I say quickly confront them, it doesn't mean that, um, you know, it doesn't mean, it, we, ha we can't be rude about it. We can't be untemperate about it. We can't be emotional about it. I mean, I know there have been times where I need to say something to somebody, but I have to just let the emotion get out. And sometimes it takes time. It could take a day, a few days, a week. It could take a little bit of time for me to just flush the emotion out because I want to act godly. So in no way, and I think the elders of the church are those who set the pace and set the example. So they're not talking about, um, you know, Paul's not telling Titus here. Um, but I remember in church history reading about um, different godly men. It, I think it was Polycarp. But he, he just, you know, he just had a way of just saying the truth to the false leader. Uh, you know, just as a matter of fact. Uh, you know, he, he, so let me, let me flush this out a little bit because I think you'll see some interesting things. So they must be confronted with sound doctrine. So there's two ways here that Titus is to respond to the false leader. One is to stop them shut them up, and then two, to confront uh, their unsoundness. Okay, so let's move on to this third question. When, and thank you, you for the question. Yeah, correct. Just to cap off, I mean, Perfect. you make a great dis distinction there that what we're actually confronting with is sound doctrine from God's word yeah. about that particular issue. Right. Like to Amy's question too, it's like if, if the other stuff is not the, the questionable part, what we want to make sure we're addressing with scripture is the part where they have departed. Yes. And, and like you say, not passing it on. That's definitely the, our responsibility not to pass on that stuff. Yeah. But yeah. making that distinction, we're, we're correcting the unsound doctrine with Scripture. And I hope you heard our elder, one of our elders, on that point. I hope you heard that. So if you didn't, make sure you come to Craig and get that, and get that point that he's making, specifically about the doctrine, the doctrinal issue. Um, and, and this can be hard. This can be clearly hard. So um, you're not alone if you're dealing with something like that. You're definitely not alone. And we need to pray for our elders. We need to pray for our elders that they keep Christ's church healthy. And we need to pray for other churches' elders. Why aren't they obeying and why are they being unruly? So number three, why is it important for Titus to confront false teachers? Why is that important? Why is it important for him to plug up the hole? Why is it important for him to fill the gap? Why? Why? Why should he be the arrow at the tip of the spear to stop this. And there's three reasons, and for time's sake, let me just point these out in verse 11. Actually, in verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me. Paul is servant. He's a slave of God. Paul was under God's authority when he's making that statement. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's under Jesus Christ. He's Christ's mouthpiece, and he's under Christ's authority. And here's what he's doing for the sake of the faith of God's elect. That's the Ek, eklos. But the word there has to do with ecclesia, the church. He's concerned about the faith of the church and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. 
Now look at verse 11 as well with me. They must be silenced, talking about the false leaders, since they're upsetting whole families. So here's reason number one. Reason number one of why it's important for Titus, the elder, to confront false teachers. It's for the health of the church, to protect Christ's church. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families, carrying them off. I mean, that's what that word means, upsetting them. They're overthrowing families. Families don't even know they're overthrown. How many families have you walked into and they're listening to some just religious weird stuff and yet they're just following right along? Um, so, to protect, to protect Christ's church and, and his elect and the truth of the gospel and because that's what's going to conform to godliness as those things are worked out. Um, let me just go to number two. The second reason why it's important for Titus to confront false teachers is to save that false teacher. I thought that was just wonderful. God is so merciful. God is so gracious. But be clear on this. He works by his word and he works by his spirit. And although you might be in a position where you can say to that false leader, please listen to the word of God. Appeal to them beg them and do it lovingly and kindly. It's to save the false teacher. Look at verse 13, for this testimony is true. This is Paul. He's reflecting on the testimony of the Cretans to the Cretans. Therefore, he's saying to them, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Sharp them, uh, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. Give them sound doctrine. Even if you think they've heard it before, give it to them again, wrapped in kindness and love and charity. I mean, this is what God's doing. <laughs> that they may be. That they may be whole. That they may be healthy. They're not healthy. They're not whole, these false leaders that are in the church. And then the reason we just give them doctrine, so they will be. And then lastly, because of the defiled heart of man, verse 15 and 16. I mean, why is it, why is it important for Titus to confront false teachers? This is interesting. Because of the defiled heart of man. I mean, how scary is this? Where a defiled man wants to come into God's house and pillage and plunder it and take advantage of God's people. They think they're getting away with something. And because of their depraved hearts, God is saying, confront them. Because of the defiled way of man. This is verse 15 and 16, and I'll just mention it and we'll be done. But he basically is saying to the pure, all things are pure. Now to be clear on this, it's talking about Christ causing us to be pure, to be righteous to be in right standing with God. To the pure, all things are pure. Because Christ has saved you and given you Christ's righteousness, you see a different way. But to the defiled and the unbelieving, verse 15, nothing is pure. Do you see the contrast there between people? The contrast is some are pure, some are defiled. And as a result of that, we sh we, why is it important for Titus to confront false teachers? just for that very reason, that some are in Christ and some are still in Adam 
in their complete defilement. To the, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Nothing is pure. Everything about them, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled, and yet they still pillage and plunder in God's house. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works, verse 16. They're, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good works. They are not concerned about anybody or anything other than themselves. Isn't that interesting? Paul says it like this, and I'll close with this. But he tells Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, they have a form of godliness. A form of godliness. They're in God's church. They're all about religion. They use the word faith. They use the word grace. They use the word Jesus. They use these different associations that we're gravitating to. I can't tell you how many times I've met people and I hear faith, I hear Jesus, and then talking with them a little bit, all of a sudden it's like, uh-oh. <laughs> they shouldn't be leading our churches. And we shouldn't be promoting them. We should stop them. And so may God help us. And may God help our leaders. So... Looking forward to next week. We're going to totally get practical here as Paul turns a corner and speaks to all of us as believers. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this time. Lord, we want to be a healthy church. We're thankful for our men. We pray for them that they would be strong in doctrine, strong in their character, strong in good works. Please help them, Lord. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.